Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Faulkner, and I am very honored and excited to have with me today a uh, very special guest and someone I look up to as a mentor and just have learned so much from over the last several decades, and that is the man behind TKR Rods and the founder of rodbuilding.org and the uh, publisher and editor of Rodmaker Magazine, Tom Kirkman. So welcome, Tom. Delighted to have you today. Great to be here. For those of you who don't know, um, Tom has a really interesting resume. He has a very interesting resume before it gets into rod building. But if we if we take the short version, he's probably the most interesting man in the rod building world. But uh, he began building rods in the in the late seventies uh, and started a full time custom rod business uh, in in like 80, 88, I guess, yeah, um, called correct. TKR Rods. And I will say this: uh, Tom doesn't. Uh, bring a lot of rods or drag them out very often, but I have seen some personally, and they were a major motivator for me in my OCD desire to build a perfect rod because some his rods are among the very, very few I've ever seen that I could not find a flaw in any way, aesthetically, technical execution. He builds a clean, fundamentally sound and gorgeous rod. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make you blush, but I just want to share that. <laughs> Thank you. He also founded really the industry's first full-size subscription-based custom rod building magazine. And if you don't follow the publishing world, that just means like a real magazine, not, not uh, you know, any of the other, you know, circulations that are out there. He founded Rodmaker in 1998 um, and, and it took off very quickly. By the early 2000s, circulation had reached more than 14,000 globally. And it's it's in about the same uh, has maintained that size uh, since then. It's in its 26th year, and I I just I can't even tell people. I, I feel like a broken record sometimes when I would record things on my YouTube channel, and I'd say I learned this in Rodmaker Magazine. I learned this in Rodmaker Magazine. Yeah. I learned this in Rodmaker Magazine. But the reality is that magazine, Tom, has brought the more new techniques and sort of broken the story of so many uh, new and, and interesting and innovative things over the last you know, several decades, right? Like two and a half decades. You've published over 1,300 articles. To me, it's um, it's kind of you have arrived and you have real credibility if you get published in Rodmaker because it's it's the best publication on this topic in the world, period. Um, and, and again, the point of this podcast is not to push the magazine, but if you're a custom rod builder, especially if you're somebody new to it, you need to subscribe immediately and get the back issues because there's a ton of good information in there. You will literally, I've been building for 28 years and I think I learned something new in every single, in every single issue. So that's, that's, that's high praise, right? So, uh, and I sort of glossed over this, but in addition to founding rodbuilding.org, www.rodbuilding.org, which has subsequently been sold, but is still, again, the, uh, the best moderated rod building content forum, uh, not drama forum, but rod building content forum, um, you know, and has been up for, you know, forever and really is the one place I refer people there all the time. There's an excellent library there where several uh, articles can be viewed and downloaded for free. And in addition to that, uh, a lot of you, if you're rod builders, you know, the the single biggest event in the rod building world is the International Custom Rod Building Exposition in North Carolina every year, ICRBE, right? It's like the ICAST of rod building globally. Uh, and Tom is the founder of that and sort of runs that event as well. So you founded that, I guess the first one was in 2004, Tom? 2004. We were yeah. actually in with uh, Barry Surrienti ran the East Coast portion of what's known as the fly fishing shows. Okay. 
and he had space down in Charlotte the convention okay. center he wasn't using. And okay. uh, I asked him, well, maybe you could sublet some to me and let's let's just see what we can do. Most people in the Robin industry didn't think it would work. Things yeah. like this had been tried before. Right. Uh, to my mind, the reason they all failed is they weren't tried properly. Right. That first year was such an eye opener for people in the industry. They said, okay, this, this work will come back. We were with him another year. I think the third year we went out on our own. And of course there was all the predictions of gloom and doom and oh yeah, you just can't, you can't do it. And yet uh, we did. And it just got bigger and bigger and it's, it's been get growing ever since. I think we've sort of reached a point. You're not going to see a lot more huge growth. Yeah. Uh, the craft is only so large, but we, we reached critical mass pretty quickly and we've been there ever since we've had no problem drawing people from all over the world right the bulk of the industry is here i yeah. think last year we had uh over 40 companies and about 65 booths um, yeah and it's just awesome it's um you know if you haven't ever gone it's in uh winston-salem north carolina it's typically in february um you can look it up the show is the show date already out there for 2024 tom or is it no, I'm st still in negotiations you know the okay. thing gets more and more expensive to put on every year but uh <laughs> but yeah if, if we if we get a 2024 event going it will be the last weekend in february it'll be in winston-salem again okay um and, and one it, thing i want to point out a lot of people ask me why do you do it in winston-salem and they think it's because i live in a city that's within about 20 miles that's really not true right if you look at the demographics 70, 75% of the people in the country live east of the Mississippi, which means the same percentage of Rob builders live east of the Mississippi. Right. Most of the guys and, and ladies want to be able to drive to the event rather than fly because of the right. nature of the products they buy. Right. It's kind of hard to take a bundle of rod blanks and carry them on an aircraft or ship them back. They right. want to be able to drive and they got to do it in a single day because right. a lot of guys can take off on Friday tend to show on Saturday, part day Sunday, get home, be back at work on Monday. Right. They can't take off Wednesday, Thursday and spend a day or two driving in, a day right. or two driving back. So you got to be within that one day driving window. Then you got to look at weather because you're doing this in February, which is important because you're not competing with fishing. You're not competing with the kids' soccer games. You're not competing with the holidays. It's the best time of the year to do it. But weather is a factor that knocks out the far north. And you start looking at this and you end up with a corridor that runs from about Atlanta, maybe up through Raleigh, North Carolina, maybe as far west as Knoxville. Then you start looking at the expense. And I can tell you, in Atlanta, which I'd love to have a show in Atlanta, but a lot of these companies could not afford it. A lot of the builders, there's you cannot get a hotel room in Atlanta for even half what you can get it, you know, in right. Winston-Salem. So um or convention space. Right? Convention space, exactly. So anyway, you know, we were in High Point, which is a good location. We we've been in Charlotte. Winston-Salem just ends up being the ideal spot. It's sort of a happy accident that it's it's not very far away from me. Right. But shows like this or attempts at shows like this have been held all over the country. Southern California, Seattle, Dallas, Minneapolis, Nashville. And and they've none yep. none have, have garnered enough interest to, to have any staying power. Most have been one and done. Right. Uh, the show in California managed to hang on for three years and the proprietor finally said, I I just can't do it anymore. It's just yeah. the interest is just not here. So uh we've we're doing I think the best we can do. And gosh, last year, I think was one of the best shows we've ever had. It's the best one I've been to. I was just going to say it was great. There was a lot of energy, a lot of new faces, uh, the new uh, learning center. Uh, we had, uh, you know, if you, I, we won't spend too much time on the show, but it's just ICRVE is the, the Super Bowl of rod building. If you've never been, you really owe it to yourself to go. It's a great time. 
you can learn a ton. All the equipment is there. You can try every lathe there is hands-on. All the people you see on YouTube and, and uh, you know, teaching instructional videos and all these things, most of them are there. Everybody who writes, most of the people who write in Rodmaker are there, you know, so it's a, it's a, I just highly encourage people to go, but so. Yeah, um, know, let me, let me add something to that. Sure. You know, I think one difference in the, the expo is similar to ICAST in this regard. You know, you go to fishing shows, have them all over the country and you walk into a booth, maybe it's a Daiwa booth, maybe it's mm -hmm. a Berkeley booth. You're talking to factory reps. When you come to the expo and you, well, for instance, if you went in the Flexcoat booth this past year, Roger Cedars was at the booth, <laughs> the man Cates, that owns right. the company. Yeah, right. You know, if you go to uh, a lot of the different uh, rod blank companies, you're actually talking to the engineers right. that engineer and build the rod. You're not talking to just uh, uh, factory reps. Right. You're talking to the people that are the best people that can answer your questions. They're yeah. the people that own the companies, run the companies, engineer the products. Right. That doesn't happen at a lot of shows. Right. Well, and depending on where you live, I mean, if you live next to a, you know, the Rod Room or a, a Jans or a Mudhole or a Get Bit, you can walk in or Fishing Tackle Unlimited. You can sure. walk in and flex some blanks and try some things and see some colors in person. Most people don't have that opportunity. So to have That's everything right. in one place. And I mean, we even, uh, Steven and Galen Pratt, CTS was there CTS, with a exactly. pile of blanks. Um, so it's not just local people either. It's, it's global. So, uh, you know, it, all that being said, it's a great show. And so it's an honor for me to have you uh, on here as a builder. I respect tremendously uh, as well as someone who's had such a investment in and influence on the industry with, rodbuilding.org and with Rodmaker and with the ICRV. So thank you so much for joining. Um, there is one sort of hazing ritual I put all my guests through sure. and that's, uh, I always uh, have them tell me how they, how they got into rod building in the first place. So what, what's your, oh. what's your tale, mother goose? Well, probably very similar to a lot of people. I started fishing when I was seven years old, we had moved north of town and there was a, well, they call it a river, more of a Creek, but I wanted to go fishing. So I did. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money like most people growing up then. This would have been back in the mid 60s. Right. And uh, it's just something it was a pastime I really, really enjoyed. And by the time I got into high school and, and had a job and could afford to do a little more, I started making spinner baits and jigs and <laughs> tying flies. Seaboard Pfeiffer was a big influence on me and his writings, his books and the magazines. Tackle craft. Um, yeah. abs and, and, and in later life, he became a really, really close friend. But that's that's a whole nother story. But at some point I had, this is going to sound odd, Vic Cutter and I were talking about, and that's somebody you need to have on the program too at some point. Yeah. But we were talking about how we both got involved in rod building. I had ordered a uh, a Browning carbon rod. Mm -hmm. was, uh, you may remember that probably in the early 70s, mid 70s, you could buy a, a loose speed stick a glass rod, top of the line for $25. Right. And that was an expensive rod. Yeah. And then the carbon rods came out and suddenly you had Fenwick and Lama glass and Siloflex and some of them. And now rods were a hundred bucks. Now, right. I don't know. I'm not going to guess anybody's age might be listening to this, but when you're <laughs> a high school kid and you're looking at a fishing rod, it's a hundred bucks. And I don't know what that adjusted for inflation today. I don't know how much that is four right. or $500. I don't right. know. It was just, I, I'll never be able to own one of these. You know, that, this is going to be the distant future. But Browning had a special. They were closing out some models and had the opportunity to uh, get one of their carbon rods. This was Siloflex for 45 bucks right. postpaid. I said, well, I got to do it. And I did some extra work, scraped together some money and sent in that small fortune. And when it arrived, UPS had been a little rough with it. And they broke the, the tip. The, the blank was broken up in the tip top tube. And I said, okay, not a big deal. I think I know how to do this. 
Cabela's has got a tackle craft catalog. I get yep. a tip top. But that rod also had, it was the waning days of the American guide manufacturers. It had perfection, yeah. uh, ceramic guides, which were basically their steel guides with a big, heavy uh, shock ring and a piece of ceramic in the middle of it. And I thought, hmm, there's some guides from a company called Fuji in this Cabela's catalog. They look a lot lighter. And uh, I'm going to order a set and see if I can put them on this rod. And I did. And then, of course, you go to fish it. And I think this is something that happens to everybody, whether they're repairing a rod or, or building a rod for the first time. You're a little bit apprehensive. What's right. going to happen? Right. You know, I don't know as much as these people at the rod company. This may not work. This rod right. may explode. Well, right. it didn't explode. And it worked so well. I told myself at that instant, I'm never going to buy another commercially made rod. There I can do this. I can make my own. And I went uh, sometime that year and bought a couple more blanks and put the rods together. And I just started from there. Yeah. And then later on, on some of my other uh, business enterprises, at some point, I just said, I want to be in my own business. Yeah. I want to see what I can do selling custom rods. And I had a pretty good business. It was more of a high-end business. I didn't build a lot of uh, right. inexpensive rods. I, I wasn't trying to get by on quantity. Right. I wanted to be able to build quality and charge for that right. and did pretty well. And then that eventually led into this idea that, gosh, you know, we really need a, a full-size subscription-based magazine. Right. where people can share ideas. And uh, I had met so many people yeah. in the robbing industry and I thought they don't really have a good way to get the word out about what they're doing and what they're innovating and what their thoughts on Rob. But because again, this preceded the internet. I mean, almost right. everything you right. had to do with Rob, but you either read in a magazine or a book that, that was all there was to it. Yeah. So uh, the magazine uh, took two or three years to gain traction and hit that critical mass, but it did. And it's been, uh, been fine ever since. And I very much enjoyed publishing it all these years. Well, it's a it's a tremendous asset, and we pr appreciate you doing it. I, I, for one, am like a little kid running out to the mailbox every month when I when I see that it's mailed, and and I hear people start conversation on the yeah. on the interwebs about articles and topics and pictures, and I'm like, oh, I haven't gotten mine yet. Mine always comes a couple of days late, and I'm jealous. Oh, but, yeah. Well, that's a great story. I, I I don't think you'd ever told me that story about how you got into rod building. That's awesome. Um, it was it was an accident, really. Oh, well, hey, happy accident for the rest if, of us. If, so. uh, UPS hadn't damaged that rod, chances are I wouldn't be in it today. No way to tell. Who knows? Well, that's a great story, man. I, I, well, I'm glad they did. I, I'm not normally glad when they damage things, and they seem to be getting yeah. better and better at it these days. But uh, I, I'm glad it happened for for all the benefit it's brought the rest of us. So, um, so I wanted to have Tom on today, and and quite frankly. Um, Tom is one of the smartest people I know, and I could probably have him talk about almost any topic. And I don't even mean rod building related. We, he could probably talk about uh, any topic, but I can talk the, about him. I don't know how correct it would be. Well, right, right. I'll get you talking about uh, piloting a glider and we'll, okay. we'll, it'll be a six hour. <laughs> it'll be a six hour episode. Um, Tom's a man of many talents and many interests. Um, uh, so. But all that being said, uh, I've always admired your analytical approach, and you sort of heard him talking about how he chose the site for ICRBE. And in my experience, he 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 works through a lot of things using hard data, using tangible, measurable facts, science, you know, and, and bringing this kind of a cold, pragmatic, unemotional approach to the best way to get performance. And and understanding also though that there's a an aesthetic in the design and 
Um, some of the really subtle things I've learned from Tom and the magazine around shading and contrast and all that's just, it's literally priceless. So, um, but one of the, one of the areas where I think you've spent a lot of time, Tom, and are ahead of other people, we're kind of walking people through how easy it is to build a rod. And then we're kind of yep. walking through how to select a blank. And then really, this is kind of the time where we want to talk about how to, what building handles and choosing handles and right, how do you right. select handles. Right. And so I know you have a very informed uh, opinion about that as a rod builder. But a lot of people may not know that you also published a book in, and I'm trying to think what year it came out. It's been just, out a just while this now. Past year, was I it? Okay. It at the expo. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, so the, the book is called Fishing Rod Ergonomics and Tom Kirkman is the author. And if you're interested in this book, and I highly recommend it, it's, if you go to the Rodmaker Magazine uh, website, which is www.rodmakermagazine.com, and then you go under books, you'll find this listed. Uh, and Tom is a published author. He's written multiple books, but this is really interesting because you took a lot of data from this groundbreaking research that actually the U.S. military did yes. in the 50s. And, and this stuff's been out there sort of mothballed and on the shelf, gathering dust for all these years. And you really went through it with a rod builder's eye, mm -hmm. uh, with someone who also has enough of a science background to understand a lot of the technical data and, and nomenclature and vocabulary and everything. And sort of brought what you learned from that and what you understand about ergonomics, uh, which is sort of inarguable science, right, into, oh, yeah. into rod building. And, and you and I were just recently having a, a conversation about what we did not like about some of the manufacturers and some of the things they do with rod building that don't make sense to us ergonomically. And so um, as we dive into this, I, I would love to know how would you counsel people and, and our audience is hopefully, you know, everybody from people I've even built their first rod yet that are just considering it to people like me that have been building for nearly three decades and, and want to learn something about this or, or pick up a new, a new trick. Right. Um, um, so what, what advice would you give about handles? And then I want to, I want to, move well, into the ergonomics and talk about that too because i think me, it's fascinating let me, okay let me let me start with where i get in on this okay uh, there was a gentleman he wouldn't mind me mentioning his name his name was bob thomas he was a dentist and he okay. lived oh i don't know a few cities over from me and uh i was building rods at the time he'd heard about me okay he had had some rods made by other rod builders and they weren't working for him because he had uh and i'm gonna forget the name of this myothenia gravis it's a, oh, okay. it's a, mm -hmm. almost, and I don't want to call it an arthritic type situation, but it it, it is right. similar to arthritis in some right. ways and other ways, even worse. He had had to give up his dental practice. He still loved to fly fish and he had had several custom rods made. And most custom rod builders then, as now, if they can't buy it off the shelf, that's it. They, they can't do it. Right. I was turning my own grips mainly for aesthetic reasons. Yeah. But he came in one day and said, I heard that you could make a grip that I can use. that will be comfortable for me. And he showed me his hands and I said, well, I don't know, but let me look into this. Yeah. And so the U S air force shortly after world war two, uh, actually had been the U S army air corps before then. And then the air force was formed towards the latter days of the war shortly right. thereafter. Right. There were so many accidents that took place in world war two with machinery and tools and aircraft and tanks and, and vehicles mainly because so much of this machinery was rushed into service. It had to be done quick. And um, there wasn't a lot of thought given to things like control handles and steering wheels and shafts and levers and how right. well the human hand could manipulate these things in a variety of conditions. So the Air Force looked into it. And that research was available. And you had to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And it was somewhat expensive. But I thought, well, let's let's just see. This, this is something I want to know about. And so I learned that uh, there's really three things 
in terms of ergonomics mm -hmm. that dictate whether they're proper from a biomechanical standpoint. Okay. And one is diameter, two is shape, and a very, very distant third is texture. And so this particular gentleman, we, we, we honed in on the size issue, the diameter issue. And right. it was very obvious to me that most fly rod grips are simply too small for the average human and mm -hmm. even much too small for somebody with a hand ailment that right. could not exert a certain amount of pressure for a certain amount of time. And so I turned a grip with a shape I thought was better with a size that I thought would be more ideal. Mm -hmm. And it kept him fishing for another 15 years. He said there was just no doubt whatsoever that he could fish these rods wow. because of the larger, better shaped handles. Oh. And so from there, I just kept working on things. You, you get these catalogs mm -hmm. and companies are quick to put er new ergonomic design. Yeah. What does that mean? Just something's, yeah, everything's ergonomic, but is it bad ergonomically or is it good ergonomically? Right. And we know that from a commercial standpoint, aesthetics sells, but aesthetics also often cause you to sacrifice good ergonomics. Yeah. The thing that fits your hand the best may not be the prettiest. Right. And, and I hate to say this, but I would say that 90 to 95% of the real seats on the market today are simply ergonomically incorrect. I, Too small. Was the, Too small. I was one of the judges yeah. at the uh, expo last year for the uh, International Rod Bidding Challenge. It's hosted by American Tackle. I was too. Yeah. And I, and I tell you what, <laughs> now there were some beautiful rods there all over the world. And yeah. it, was, it was, I think, the, the best competition they've had so far. And uh, myself and Nuno Paulino and, and Mark Krause were the judges at the show. And one of the criteria they had to be judged on was their fishability, their, their comfort for all those beautiful rods. On a score of one to 10 on, on any category, whether it was alignment or thread finish or decoration, anything. And I gave out a lot of eights, nines, and tens. When it came to fishability and comfort, I don't think I gave anything higher than a five. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of threes and fours. And the fact is, they just weren't very comfortable. Right. And a lot of that was due to the fact that the ergonomics just weren't correct. They were too small. They were shaped for the eye rather than the hand. Yeah. And, um, I think I would I would tell guys that are really serious about getting into custom rod building that are focused more on building a better rod to learn to turn your own grips and handles. If you want to go further, learn to make your own real seats, but at least learn to turn your own grips and handles so that you bring that under your control. Right. And I think that's one of the things if you want to sell rods, you've got to be able to offer something that the commercial rod makers don't. Earlier, you and I were talking and you said, you know, they're, they're building for the masses. Mm hmm. They kind of bring everything together and say, okay, this, this is the average rod builder. We're going to build something that works for him or her. As right. a custom builder, you're building for the individual. Right. You can take measurements. We know what these measurements are. We know what the ideal diameter is. We know what the best shapes are. We know which direction the taper should be pointed in. You can do all that and provide a guy with a rod. He's going to go out and fish. He may not understand it, but what he will know is this rod works better for me. Yep. I can cast it. I can fish it. My hand doesn't fatigue. It's comfortable throughout the day. I can fish it longer and harder with less fatigue. And the, I think these are the sort of things, if you're really serious about getting into custom rod building and truly want to build a better rod, this is the one thing you can do that the factory simply can't do. Right. And, you know, to me, this kind of notion of building not for the average person who doesn't actually exist, but is sort of a 
a statistical, you know, uh, cluster, but building for the individual, that's truly custom. That's truly bespoke. And that's oh, yeah. not to, that's not to take anything away from, uh, folks that don't want to go to that level, don't have time, space, money for the tooling, for a lathe, for whatever it takes to be able to mm-hmm. turn your own things. But if you really do want to talk about custom and custom rod building, we're not just assembling readily available parts. You, you ideally would be doing exactly what you're talking about, which is optimizing and tweaking uh, the performance, every aspect of the performance, including the grips and the ergonomics and things like that, right? Yeah. To make it fit, like you said, that one angler. So that that's why this topic is so fascinating to me. So you mentioned that the optimal diameter uh, or optimum diameter, tell me a little bit about that. And, and so, um, you know, you and I had a conversation like this. I put a size 18 Fuji NPS on an ultralight rod um, just to try it, uh, because yeah. you said try it, and uh, I gave away all my ultralights that had size 16 seats on them. And, and if you put a 20 right, on it, you'll give away the 18. E- even better, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, but it was again, it, it looked foreign to my eye. It took me some time, right. and, and you know, frankly, it's not for everybody. Some customers just don't want them. I always say, just take it here, take this, and go fish it. And uh, you know, tell me what you like and don't like about it. And and a lot of the time, people will say, you know what, I actually really like that now that I fish it. But some people don't. That's fine. They can have what they want. But let's talk about that. Uh, Since diameter is, you know, diameter is really big, right? Shape is second. And then the texture or surface treatments of distant third. Let's talk about those. Let's talk about those first two. So what diameter, everybody has a a different length hand. If you draw a line, if you lay your hand out flat, palm Mm -hmm. up, you draw Mm -hmm. a line across the top of your middle finger and one right there at the crease, uh, excuse me, the the, uh, crease in your wrist Mm -hmm. there below your thumb pad, there is a factor that you can multiply that by, and that will give you a diameter of a tube of a cylinder that will provide you with something that you can apply the most pressure with the least effort for the longest time. Smaller than that, something's going to drop off. Larger than that, something's going to drop off. There is an ideal. So we have that. From there, you start talking about shapes. Mm -hmm. Human hand is naturally curved, right? And the closer you can keep it to its natural curve with just a little pressure, the better you are. Okay. You look at something like a uh, a full wells fly grip, mm-hmm. and I don't know. There may be some rod builders if they, if they don't know the names of the fly rod grips, they may not understand what I'm talking about. But they can look it up. There's pictures sure, sure. Uh, right. on the internet. That is probably the most ideal fly rod grip possible because it puts your thumb and forefinger in a hollowed area. It puts a swell in the palm of your hand, which then tapers back off on the heel of your hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it fills the center of your hand with a larger diameter. It puts a smaller diameter where your thumb and forefinger are on. It is absolutely ideal, provided the swell is large enough diameter. We still right. want to get, get rid of the diameter. Yeah. But there's an instance of a shape where if you had simply a tube or cylinder, somebody tried to pull that from your hand versus try to pull something with a full well shape, they will have to try a lot harder to pull yeah. that full well's grip out of your hand. And you'll be able to withstand that with far less effort. Right. And this is where diameter and shape really go hand in hand. If I'm understanding the book properly, even if I took two full wells shapes, one of which was optimized for my hand Mm -hmm. versus maybe optimized for average, it'd be easier to pull the average out of my hand, even though it's the same shape than the one that actually has the, let's call it ideal or intended diameter for me, right? Oh, sure. It would be. I mean, the, the more things that you can bring to the table, that you can connect, the more pieces of the puzzle you put together the better you are. Now, you talked about building the uh, ultralight rod. Most people, you see this on the forums, what size real seat do I need for such and such a blank? The real seat should fit your hand. Don't worry about fitting the blank. You can always 
Shemit, put arbors, whatever. The only time that goes out the window, if you've got a huge one-piece surf rod and you've simply got to use a number 32 real seat or something, because that's all that it'll fit. It's all that'll fit, right, yeah. It's all that'll fit. But most of the time, if, if you stop and think about it, you look at a set of golf clubs. I don't care whether it's a, a pitching wedge or a driver, the grips are all the same diameter because yeah. your hand doesn't change shape. Right. Just the clubs do. And the same way with fishing rods, regardless of what type of rod you're using, your hand is the same size and shape. Right. The same grip size will work. And if you look at my ultralight rods, I've got number 20 real seats on them. Right. But they're easy to use. And, I, and that's the way I built them for people and, and they love them. Uh, as you said, it won't be for everybody, but if you can get people to try it, if you size the real seat properly to their hand. And then you've got to look at the type outfit you're talking. Is it spinning? Is it casting? With a casting reel, a lot of times guys are gripping that reel, but they're palming it. You don't know whether they got one finger in front of the, the trigger or three fingers in front of the trigger. Right. Now the real seat and the reel sort of becomes the grip more so than the actual grip behind it. There's a lot of things to consider. Right. But these are these are not hard concepts. And most custom rod builders, if they get involved with it and think about it, it won't take long before they they get the idea and they'll know what to do. They'll know how to dial somebody in. Right. And there's, you know, I think sometimes, um, sometimes folks do get uh, aspects of the ergonomics right, and they might not know why, right? Like you just really like a sure. full wells, more than a half wells, and you don't know why, but well, it's more ergonomically sound, exactly. actually. And the, the, you know, the other one that comes to mind that was such an aha moment for me, I'm a huge fan of Rich Forehand, uh, yeah. who who the Rodmaker magazine sort of brought to the world, right? And for those of you who don't know him, talk about someone who I would love to have on this podcast. So uh, he's, I think, a retired, is he an Air Force pilot? Or, Air Force pilot, served in yeah, Vietnam, sure did. Retur yeah, retired fighter just fighter jet pilot. And he sort of sat down and took this analytical engineer's approach to what needs to be on a rod, what doesn't need to be on a rod. Right. And he, so he, mm -hmm. to my knowledge, is the first person to ever do split grips. He, to my knowledge, is the first person to ever, you know, skip a foregrip that you never touch on a casting rod with a fishing style right. where you never grab that part of the rod. Um, you know, he, his, his, my favorite intervention, uh, innovation of his to this day is, is, drilling a, a hole through the trigger of a carbon fiber, yeah. you know, a plastic reel seat. So you don't have to have an extraneous hook keeper anywhere that tangles and adds weight and, you know, corrodes and all this. But one of the things that was so interesting, uh, in addition to just trying to get when he's, you know, he's watching people use these rods all day and he had like a, a stopwatch and he had a, a tape measure and he's like using data and science. No one ever touches the center of these long spinning or casting grips. So he just got rid of them. But the sort of yeah. thing that he found was because there's only two places you can grab the rod at the one at the terminal button, one sort of, you know, at the, where you're going to hold the reel. He, he inadvertently, or maybe not so inadvertently made those rods more accurate to cast because they forced the angler to make their, like a, like a, elite shotgun trap shooter in the Olympics who met, who doesn't, whose mount of the gun doesn't vary right. a fraction over a thousand gun mounts. And that's how they're able to shoot so clean. If you put your hands in the exact same place, every time you cast that rod, you're ergonomically like sort of fundamentally sound and you're, you know, biomechanically sound and you're going to have be more accurate and have more repeatable results because you're repeating what you're doing. And it really doesn't have anything to do with the rod per se, but so I, it, it, this isn't just a hokey concept where people can kind of nerd out or deliberately put large, you know, grips on rods just to try to, you know, say they're ergonomic. It, it, when you get this right, you can unlock tremendous advantages right. in functionality. And it's really most especially to me, the way I experience it as I'm getting older and I have wrist problems and I've had to have surgery on both wrists. 
it's how long I can use the tool, the rod comfortably before I start to fatigue and get tired. When you get the ergonomics right, it's dramatic, right? Sure. And when you when it's wrong, it's a 16 real seat on a on a ultralight. Yeah, why is, and, why is and my and hand it, always see, going to sleep? Right. Yeah. And see, when it's when it's wrong, if if you don't know why it's wrong, you'll keep using it. You'll just know that maybe right. it's not as comfortable as I. And if you've never fished anything different, you won't know. You just assume right. this is the way it is. Sure. Now right. we, I want to go back for a second because the third thing we talked about, and I'm sure people heard me say this, and they're waiting to hear what I have to say about texture. Way, way back, 2000, gosh, when was it? 2004, 2005, myself and another friend of yours, Andy Deer, down in Andy Texas. Andy Deer, I know exactly where together you're going. And, and sort of came together, and our two projects ultimately uh, ended up becoming what we now know as the carbon fiber foam core real seat. Grip, yeah. I've seen a lot of people take credit for them, but we, but we did that. <laughs> and one of the conversations we had, because these grips are uh, smooth, Mm -hmm. uh, carbon and uh, they're coated with uh, minor polyurethane permagloss from Trondac. Other people right. use some people use them bare. But one of the first things that got kicked back to us was, well, they're going to be slippery. And I said, no, smooth and nope. slippery are not the same thing. And now we're also we, we're going back to the fact, yeah, they're smooth. There's no texture there, but they've got shape and they've got diameter. Right. And they're correct. Right. And suddenly you realize that texture in this case doesn't make any difference and here's right. why and I, I wrote this down because i wanted to make sure i got the name of the school correct uh a study performed by the school of exercise and sports science at the university of sydney australia okay they had several dozen people participate in this ex experience and they wanted to see what the gripping ability of the human hand was under various conditions okay they built a ramp fairly steep you needed the use of the handrail to help you get up and down it okay and they tried five different materials some different diameters. They ended up with two inches for this particular application seemed to be appropriate. Okay. And they found that a dry hand worked fine with that diameter. A wet hand was just as good. They didn't lose any ability to grip the rail, even with their hands wet. But Interesting. when they applied soapy water to the hands, now people had to apply a lot more pressure. There was some slipping. So they moved to a textured surface. They found that bare or wet-handed didn't make any difference. But with the soapy water, the textured surface, now it made a difference. Now it restored the grippiness. And a lot of times people will say, okay, well, it's the same thing in fishing because you've got wet hands, fish slime, which typically if I get fish slime on my hands, I try to wipe it off. Right. <laughs> and I don't catch that many fish these days anyway. But hey, Easy. You I, don't have to tell that. We can edit that out. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> um, again, what they what they didn't allow for, again, was shape. If that rail had been undulating, if it had swells like on a full well, just repeatedly, you know, every four, five, six inches, I'm almost certain they would have found that the texture wasn't needed. But texture is something else just to put in your bag of tricks, depending on what you're dealing with, right. such as we'll say you're going to use a cord wrap on a surf rod mm -hmm. and you just want a straight, straight grip. So you're not really going to have any shape. You're not going to have any taper other than the blank taper itself. Now you might say, okay, what I need to do here is to get some texture going. So I'm going to use this size cord so that I have the highs and the lows between the, the cord layers. Mm -hmm. And this is probably going to help me out here in lieu of having the specific diameter or the shape I want. Got it. So these are all things you can put together. You can use individually. You do what you need to do to provide the best grip. There's just so many options out there.
Well, I, I love, you know, uh, I'm a great fan of the carbon fiber grips, right? Um, yeah. And have been, I, I literally remember how that blew my mind when you guys published that first set of articles and I was running around trying to buy urethane pore foam and getting it stuck to the floor and walls in my garage. My wife was so mad at me, but um, that stuff's tough, man, <laughs> once it gets stuck to something. But, and I remember a couple of things stood out to me. One was the vast majority of people that were complaining about the grips are going to be slippy, had, had slippery, had never tried one, never made one, never tried one, never held one in their hands, just purely speculating. So that kind of laziness drives me a little bit crazy. But I remember at one point, and this was probably, I don't know if this would have been at a show, Tom, where you were speaking, or if this would have been in, in uh, on the forums of rodbuilding.org. But, uh, you know, the you said, hey, you ever drive by a house that's getting a roof replaced or go to a new development that's under new construction and watch them framing and building a house? Every single one of them is using a 16-ounce framing hammer with a lacquered, smooth wooden handle. That's right. Right? And it's hot and sweaty or it's raining, and you don't see hammers flying around all over the place, right? right? Why is that? And it's exactly these elements that you've been talking about because it has the right sort of firm or rigid or I don't know what, mm-hmm. what the firm. Uh, it's the right diameter and it's the right shape. The fact that it's a slippery lacquered handle matters Has very, no- very little. Right. Yeah. And, and this is something I think sometimes people get wrong. And and and, and I, you probably have a little bit more of the science on this. So I want to kind of lead you down this path. But I think sometimes we also try to go with soft, squishy materials because yeah. we think that feels like it's going to give us more of a grip. That's actually more fatiguing and harder to hold on to. Right. Because so, your, your hand, your hand is working over time and particularly bad on a fishing rod this is why although cork is still a wonderful material for an awful lot of fishing applications it's a natural material i don't think it'll ever be completely replaced but the first thing that happens when a guy moves from a cork grip to one of the foam core carbon fiber grips is he'll say my hand hurt i said that's because you're trying to grip it the way you did a cork grip you don't need to do that you can ease up it doesn't take as much pressure Right. And if we, we step back just for a minute to what you mentioned about a hammer, anthropologists sure. believe hammers have been around for, I guess it depends on whether you believe in an old age earth or a new age earth, but millions. <laughs> We're not going to settle thousands. that here. <laughs> no. And the hammer handle, the shape of a hammer handle, and there's been some bad ones. People have tried to improve upon it, but sure. after many, 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 at least hundreds of years through evolution of the design. They finally came up with a thing that the vast majority of people said, this works. This, right. this is where we need to be. And I don't know if they'll ever improve it. Right. But if you also think about it, there is another component to a hammer handle that people often don't think about. It's not round. It's not a cylinder. It's an oval. And that is another aspect of ergonomics and fishing rods. The reason it's oval is if it's oval, it's easier for the hand and the wrist to resist torque or twisting when you strike a nail at an off angle. Right. Well, you know, in fishing. There are certain types of fishing, big fish, Mm -hmm. uh, different types of fishing applications where you may be forced to hold that rod from turning or twisting. And in those applications, an oval handle or an octagonal handle, a six-sided handle. Or triangular, whatever. Triangular can possibly offer some advantage. These are just things to think about. These are, again, you know, we're going from diameter. We're talking about shape and texture, but that shape component is not just longitude it's also around there right. was a company many years ago that made a fly rod grip called a manaform. the manaforms yeah absolutely and it was basically a hammer hand right now the right. knock on it was and i would agree with this we don't always cast and hold the rod in the same position right it was very hard to alter your grasp on that shape yeah. and find a new grip that was equally comfortable basically you were locked in 
Right. And some yeah. people object to that. You know, if you have, yeah. say, a full Wells or a uh, uh, reverse half Wells or a Western or whatever, you can make or those even, minor even a simple cylinder, yeah. you can move your hand up and down. to and fro yeah. to change your grip a little bit, take a little pressure off these muscles, apply right. a little more with these. Right. And over the course of a day, I think it's more comfortable. Yeah. But there are some applications where these non-cylindrical grips and handles do have an application. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, great point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of the maniforms in a while. Yeah, so I, I love the hammer handle explanation because I think that's something people can get, right? That's accessible uh, and people sort of get what you're talking about immediately. Yeah. So, Tom, another aspect of this that's really interesting is uh, how firm or squishy a grip is. So, so what did, has your research sort of taught you about firmness of grip? Uh, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, the final aspect uh, or uh, good ergonomic design and what I like to call where the rubber meets the road is where you grasp a fishing rod, whether it's for casting, which will be at the uh, possibly a two-handed cast. So one hand is going to be on the butt of the rod, retrieving, uh, spinning, it'll be the real seat, casting, it'll be just behind the real seat. And then fish fighting, particularly with larger fish, it'll be forward of the real seat. The more direct, the more rigid, the more firm that your grip is, the easier it is to control the rod and to apply more of your imparted energy to the rod while resisting energy or movement from a fish, a lure, what have you. The problem you have with softer grip materials, I'm not going to pick on any in particular, but I'm, I am going to use something such as uh, any of the softer foam type grips. Sure. They rob you of a lot of control. And they require you to grasp the rod uh, a lot more firmly. And let me, let me uh, give the listeners an interesting experiment they can try for themselves if they'd like to go to just a little bit of trouble and learn more about how important the rigidity or the firmness of a grip is. Oh, good. I'll do it. I want to I hear. Okay. Okay. Just get a uh, just an old-fashioned hammer with a wooden handle. Okay. And these have evolved over hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years, to be about as good as they're going to get. Take that hammer with about 25 nails and pound those nails into a scrap piece of lumber, a two by four, what, whatever you've got. Okay. Now go back and get yourself some EVA or Hypalon foam, such as commonly used on many rod handles. Sure. Get something sufficient that you can get it over the hammer handle tightly. I don't care whether it's thin wall or thick wall. It's going to have some give to it. Right. Now go back and pound 25 more nails into that scrap piece of lumber with that same hammer that now has a piece of Hypalon or EVA grip on it. And I can tell you what's going to happen. You're going to have to grasp the hammer handle a lot more firmly. You may even start to experience some hand fatigue before you get all 25 nails in that piece of lumber. And the other thing that's going to happen, you're going to bend some of those nails because you're not going to have the same control and you're not going to be able to resist uh, an off-center strike with the hammer as easily as you could if you had that direct connection to a firm wooden handle mm. and this I, th I think this really teaches a lesson if guys will go out and try this for themselves of what happens with a fishing rod it's exactly the same thing granted you're not pounding nails uh, with a fishing rod but you are applying and resisting force you're resisting sure. yeah. uh, fore and aft force rotational force you're applying things such as that and this is why certain materials simply make better grip materials than others you know that's 
it makes sense to me. I remember the first time I tried a carbon fiber grip on a fly rod. And again, I've been fly fishing since I was like seven. It was like a different, and I don't, I think of cork as a pretty firm material, right? And, and all the traditional fly grips are cork, but man, you could really feel a difference, yeah. right? And, and on and a few it's, of mine, know, I, I re-gripped them. I, I pulled off the, either it's a four sure. piece rod where I didn't have to pull off a, a stripping guide or three piece rods where I just had to take off one stripping guide and put some new ones. And it was like a different rod. So what you're saying makes sense. I guess I just had never thought of it that way. So, so should we be using firmer materials? What, what materials should we be using or, or has this informed your perspective of the best grip and handle materials or? Well, I think that the, the best grip and handle materials will always be those that are light mm-hmm. and as rigid as possible and there are different types that meet those criteria and which will be the best will depend on your particular application. Mm. Let's let's look at cork for just a second. Sure. Cork is a time-honored natural material that has yet to be bested except in a very few situations. It's light, relatively rigid. You will never find EVA, Hypalon, any sort of soft grip on a fly rod because all your control, all your input is right there on that, that one area. And it just won't work. Cork is great for that. Cork is great for, gosh, just so many uh, applications. The only thing that I think is better than cork in certain situations would be the rigid foam carbon fiber grips that that yep. Andy Deere and myself developed oh, 20 yep. some years ago. Right. Um, however, you got to remember that carbon skin is not the magic. The magic is the rigid foam core. It's light. It's extremely rigid. Uh, even more so than cork. And that's why when you put one of these grips on a fly rod, suddenly you notice that you're you're overpowering the rod. You can mm-hmm. you can ease up a bit. Right. All your energy is going into the rod. You're not using it to overcome even the slight compression of the cork. Your right. control is going to be better. Yep. It makes a, a once you get used to it, it is a superior grip on a fly rod. Yep. Now, beyond that, we look at other rod types. We just mentioned the the carbon skim foam core grips and the cork mm-hmm. grips. But let's say you've got a surf rod and you're going to have it in a sand spike or mm. you've got some sort of a trolling rod with, where the butt grip is going to be in a rod holder. Right. Now we're at a situation where maybe cork won't be durable enough. Right. Maybe we want something that that has a little more grab to it to hold in these also rigid uh, spikes and holders. Mm-hmm. Cord, if you use the right kind, I'm not a fan of a paracord. It's too soft, but good, high quality, uh, twisted nylon cord. Uh, mm-hmm. coated with uh, a couple of coats of urethane or something. It becomes quite firm and it's extremely durable. They won't wear out in a rod holder. Uh, we look at, say, the uh, butt grips on stand-up trolling rods. You see the uh, plasti butts and, and uh, hard butts, either aluminum or plastic or nylon. They're excellent. Again, though, you don't have your hand on those. So you're looking at a different application. Right. You still have right. to pay attention to it. But yeah, I think that the, the main thing to look for is anything that's extremely light and extremely rigid. It's going to make a better grip than almost anything else. And the idea that, well, if the grip is rigid, if, if it feels hard in my hand, it doesn't compress, it's going to be uncomfortable. That's really not true. You're going to find over the course of, of anything you use, whether it's, as we said, a hammer, a lawnmower that somebody's put a foam grip on, they may feel nice at first. But the right. longer you grasp them because of that additional force you must use to control what you're trying to do, your hand will fatigue. They will quickly become uncomfortable. Yep. It's the ergonomics that defeats fatigue, not the, uh, not the material. 
So, so yeah. if you're gonna, you know, EVA is still very popular. Customers still want it sometimes. Um, thoughts about if you have an application or a customer where they do want that EVA or Hypalon type grip, any recommendations there? Yeah. Uh, let's First of all, let's consider why materials like Hypalon and EVA became popular. First of all, they're cheaper than cork uh, yeah. to be used on mass produced rods. Especially these days. <laughs> yeah, sure. They're, you know, easy to install. Uh, and this is why they were so popular and remain so popular on so many of the uh, commercially produced rods. And I'm not saying absolutely don't use them, but if you must, if it's you not know, all created equal. <laughs> right. But, you know, you start looking at EVA grips. There's some awfully cheap grips out there. They're almost spongy in nature, but there are some some better ones. I would say uh, anything that has a hardness and that would be a durometer rating of at least 75, if not higher. There there are some out there. Uh, I know you can buy some turning blocks. Uh, Got to be careful when you turn EVA, though. You know, it softens. Right. It's, you, you get the friction and you get the heat. So if, you, if you're going to use something like EVA, just try to find the densest, firmest EVA that you possibly can. Yeah, excellent. And don't put it on a fly rod. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, man, that's a great point. I'm glad we, we sort of dove into that. Um, what else? I mean, you've gone so deep on this. And again, I, if you want to learn more, uh, the book is, uh, it's available at rodmakermagazine.com, Fishing Rod Ergonomics by Tom Kirkman. It's a great book. And, and, you know, again, if you're a serious rod builder, I think, Tom, you do a really good job as an author of trying to take this technical data and study and sort of translate it into practical ways we can use it. Like, hey, you need to be thinking about this. You need to be thinking about what we just talked about. You need to be thinking about this shape. You need to be thinking about the diameter. You need to be thinking about whether it's round or not, right? You need to yeah. think about the length of it. You need to think about these kinds of things. Um, what else? What, what, what other advice would you give people if they're, so they've been listening for a while now and we, we may have their attention. Uh, talk to me about some of the other things you'd call people's attention to or where you feel like you see a lot of rod builders get it wrong or maybe leave leave performance or opportunity for performance on the table from an ergonomic standpoint. Well, I think that you, you get used to, get you get this idea of what something's supposed to look like. Right. Fishing rods have pretty much looked the same for an awful, awful long time. Uh, with the advent of somebody like Rich Forehand and his no foregrip, split grip rods, yeah. you didn't see those sort of things very often. And I know that when he publicized that in his book, Power Hand Bait Casting, it took a while. In fact, commercial manufacturers didn't really want to touch it. I and mean, they knew that it made sense. Yeah, but it didn't look right. That's not what a fishing rod looked like. And but so, you could walk through a Bass Pro Shops now, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You'd be hard pressed to find a rod <laughs> to find one, right? Which yeah. is influence on it. exactly. But um, a lot of times, guys, because they just feel like I'm some guy in a basement or garage shop. What do I really know about this? You know, this feels better. This seems to work better. But hey, right. it doesn't look like what they're selling down at right. the local sporting goods store. Right. Sometimes you just got to be confident and and say, look, a fishing rod is a tool. Right. I'm going to make it work and do what I want it to do. And if it doesn't look like the fishing rods I grew up with, so what? Not to say you didn't build something better, right. but you've, you got to be careful not to fall into that trap Yeah, and say yeah, a rod has to look this way. You know, if, if we all did that, there would never be any improvement. There'd never be any, any evolution of any tool, any handle, anything that we deal yeah. with. Yeah. Well, and it's it's so interesting that a lot of custom builders, especially starting out, tend to follow the... Uh, follow the manufacturers and what we actually know is that the manufacturers are following people like rich people like us, that's <laughs> right. right it's a circle you're, you're 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 chasing yourself in an endless circle if you uh if you follow them but yeah 
Well, that's super helpful. What else? I mean, what else have you on this topic of handles and ergonomics? Anything else that uh, you'd you'd put out there for an attentive audience that's open-minded about it? Yeah, the the only thing I would say, and and, and I really like custom aesthetics as much as the next guy, but Mm -hmm. uh, you got to be careful not to do too much. Yeah. Uh, I think you need to stick to the basics. Mm -hmm. We often hear about form versus function. I think you can have both. There's clever ways to do it. I think you did an article for us. You know, we were working with the uh, foam core carbon fiber grips and you sent me an article with some uh, how to tint them with some glitter mm-hmm. just to give them a little more snap. And some pigments. And, yeah. uh, and then I went and put, a, I think, a couple of uh, pinstripes around the circumference, just something to make it look. It didn't change anything about its functionality, but it improved the aesthetics. Looks good. And yeah. I, I think anytime you can you can improve the aesthetics without giving up function, go on and do it. Yeah. But if it does cause you to give up function, then you're really losing the place of, of what you're building this thing for anyway. Yeah. You know, we saw a lot of stuff in these these rod competitions. Mm-hmm. And some of the rods are very, very beautiful and still fish well. I've seen some that are very, very beautiful, but probably don't fish very well. Right. It's It's possible to do too much or do the wrong thing in the right place the right thing in the wrong place. It's uh, I would just tell everybody, learn the basics, right? Stick to the basics, build a functional product, and then add your aesthetics. You hear people talk about weight all the time. Oh, if you put a decorative wrap on a rod, well, look where you're putting it. You're putting it down near the handle, right? It's not going to affect the swing weight as if you had put it up near the tip. You know, if you want to put weight on a rod, put it down near the handle. Right. But um, these are just the sort of things that I wish rod builders took more time to think about. And I don't want to use the word study because it'll intimidate people and they think, gosh, I'm going to have to right. put in it's like going back to school. Well, it's not. It's fun if you really get into it. But it is all too common for most people that want to build custom fishing rods to get started with aesthetics yeah. and never get a sound foundation in the basics of building a good functional fishing rod. Yeah. And and you have written a, a couple of, you have personally authored a couple of articles and fit and finish, I guess, is kind mm-hmm. of the, the category that we put it under. And I can say this because I, I look at very few people's rods and say, and don't see things. Now I may not say it. I may be polite about it. Look at very few people's rods and say, this rod's perfect. This rod is flawless, right? I, I have seen several of yours that were, right? Um, and yeah, and I not, you, not if I look at them. Well, okay, but you've you know. written, but you've also written some articles. Let's talk about that a little bit because I, I think you just hit on something really important there, and I, it wasn't necessarily the the topic du jour. But one of the things that makes me crazy, and you sort of just alluded to it, is when you you get a rod, someone shows you a rod, and says, "What do you think of my rod?" It's like, okay, you don't have to put every single decorative technique right. you you know is out there on one rod. It doesn't have to have this custom inlaid you know, grip. It doesn't have to have the custom painted real seat with the all three kinds of thread art, you know, plus marbling plus, you know what I mean? And then when, when you look at it, even if those things are fairly well executed, if the epoxy finish over, it's really bad. And the thread work on the guide wraps is got gaps and isn't well burnished and the epoxy works terrible. It's like, this doesn't look like a very good rod. Right. So, That's right. Um, I, and I know you see way more rods than most of us uh, and have for decades. Right. So um, what, what advice would you give people that are trying to build? And I, what I would give them is like, go, go buy the back issues. And anytime you see an article about fit and finish, it's worth your time, read it. And, he, you provide very good, very clear examples well, of these kind of things. But talk about that a little if you Here's the analogy I would use. Some years ago in the Olympics, Winter Olympics, we'll take figure skating. 
Okay. Women's figure skating is always very popular. And I remember when uh, some of the girls started trying to do things that were really, really difficult. Nobody ever done a triple, triple jump right. and they'd fall. Right. Another girl would come out. She would stick to doubles and land everyone perfectly. Well, the girl right. that did the triples and fell would get a higher score. And they'd say, well, yeah, but what she did was more difficult. Yeah, but she didn't do it. It didn't right. work. Right. The girl that did the doubles. Hers was perfect. Right. So I kind of look at rods like this. I think anything you do should be done well. If you can't do it well, don't do it. Right. I would rather see a rod that's a little more simple, mm-hmm. but as close to perfect as it can be, than a rod that has every decorative technique in the book thrown at it, and it's just not quite well done. Right. Yeah, I agree. You know, I just I think what's needed should be there, and what's and what's uh, should be there should be needed, and anything else, just do it well. If you can't do it well, back up. Right. Leave it out. Yeah. No, I, it's really good advice, uh, um, and and so I, I appreciate you touching on it because it's it's probably the number one piece of advice I'd give people is like it's got to be functional, you know, like really functionally sound first, right? And, and oh, by the yeah. way, probably if we talk about failures and malfunctions, you know, your surface prep and your bonding techniques and things oh, are sure, going to be sure. way more important and fundamental than any of the decorative aesthetic stuff. Uh, anyway, right? So um, I'll tell but- you, let me tell you a quick story. This goes back to most guys, at least our age, will know Dale Clements. Oh, yeah. And Everybody Dale knows a, Dale Clements. Dale yeah. was an insurance salesman. He got involved in building rods. Mm-hmm. And the first rod he built, he went out. I can't remember quite all the details. He was telling me this about one time. He was out with some other guys. And he was very proud of the rod. Nicely done. It was a pretty rod. I think he put a diamond wrap on it. And uh, very shortly after he began using it, It came apart. The handle came apart. The real seat started spinning, I think. It started spinning. Yeah. And that was when he realized, well, now he's embarrassed because he told those guys, look, I built this. And they're saying, yeah, well, obviously you built it. It (laughs) But uh, that's when he went back to school and said, okay, before I I jump too far ahead of myself, I got to learn to build a sound, functional product that'll hold up. Right. And then from there, I'll learn the other stuff. And I think that's just a a very appropriate thing for new rod builders to learn. And I'd also tell new rod builders not to be intimidated. You can do this. There's really not that much to a fishing rod. And the people at the factories that are putting them together, these are not necessarily highly, highly skilled craftsmen. In many cases, they're not even anglers. That's exactly right. I don't know that some of them put the rods together have ever been fishing. Right. I know when I uh, when I walk the, and I've had the good fortune of walking many of the uh, North American based manufacturing uh, rod manufacturing operations, whether it's rod wrapping or blank yeah. sand rod wrapping. And I always ask them and the answer is usually no. Right. <laughs> and that's OK. That's, you know, you, it's OK. You, but it speaks to the fact that, you know, if you're an engaged builder, you love this craft, you love this sport and, and you're, you understand how what you're doing translates to better function out and enjoyment out on the water, like you're going to be at least as motivated as they are. Right. And, sure. and it, as, as we remind people all the time, you're your own quality assurance department. It, you don't have to wrap so many an hour, like uh, the very proficient rappers at, at St. Croix or at G Loomis do, right. You have the luxury of building them one at a time and you can take as long as you need to get it exactly right. So it's, it's, uh, it's worth doing. It's funny. You said, I've looked at some rods and I think they're perfect. And you said they're not perfect to me. That's the first thing I notice when I look back at any of my old rods, or if I have a customer bring me back a rod, I'm like, Oh, I thought I was doing better work at this time. <laughs> on, You know what I mean? Like by my current standards, 
that rod was unimpressive oh, to I me and I, I wanted to make it right. And so it's like, uh, I think that the, the pursuit of perfection, even if we never quite get there is, is, is part of what this should all be about too, and can be very gratifying. So, and you know, we keep learning too. I look at rods I built in the, in the seventies and eighties and early nineties with just the standard Kona flight guide system. Right. And then oh, you, yeah. you moved on to the new guide <laughs> concept. And the first right. rod I did, I said, why haven't we been doing this all along? Right. And you keep thinking we, how much further can we go with a fishing rod? Right. And I honestly think we can go a long way. I don't think yeah. we're there yet. Yeah, I agree. Well, man, it's such a pleasure to have you on. This was so oh, informative. Thank you so much. So if you guys are interested, like I said, you can subscribe to Rodmaker Magazine at www.rodmakermagazine.com. We'll put that all below in the description and everything else like that. But it's a great resource, highly recommended. We'll also put the link to um, the last year's uh, International Custom Rod Building Exposition. Like Tom said, uh, you heard it straight from the source. Not a date set yet, probably into February next year. If you've never been, I really highly recommend you make an effort to go. It's a wonderful event and just a, a really neat gathering of the community and, and worth your time. I've literally never talked to anybody uh, who didn't enjoy it. And, and I remember as I'm sitting here talking about Rodmaker, I remember, Tom, you telling me, uh, and so keep me honest here because I'm putting words in your mouth, that, and, I, and this is funny to me because we're 26 years into it now, yeah. it was pretty early on in the magazine days and uh, I, I think, feel like someone told you, like, you can never do it. You can never keep this magazine going because right. you're going to run, run out of ideas. You're going to run out of topics, right? Yeah. yeah. Hey, just, I just want to check in 26 years in uh, and still rolling. Uh, you run out of topics yet? No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's so many people, so many great rob builders out there, and they're always willing to, to talk and send me articles. And, yeah. you know, I'm even finding uh, after robbuilding.org was sold, and I have a little more time now to get back in the shop and yeah. try to innovate my mind is just swirling with new ideas, things I've been wanting to try. Oh, that's so exciting. I yeah. I don't, uh, I don't see anything running out there. There's enough creative uh, people out there building rods that I think there'll always be something. Absolutely. You know, and I think I, I'm so excited. I don't know about you, but you know, I'm so excited about suddenly in the last few years, the demographic of the craft is changing. We are attracting way more, at least from my perspective, female builders, way more younger builders, right? Uh, whether they're kids, whether they're teenagers, whether they're young adults, you know, this for a long time, this was kind of the, uh, the domain of the, like Dale Clemens, the retired insurance yeah. salesman, right? Like in, who are looking for something to do in their semi-retirement. I also think you take a really talented person who's willing to work really hard at it and they start in their 20s. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you're going to have a much longer kind of effective curve of, of of innovation, right? And what might come out. So I'm just mm -hmm. super excited to see what some of these new builders and younger builders come up with, because undoubtedly they 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 came up with a different definition of technology, and they think about these things differently than we did. And, and fishing is changing, and baits and lures and lines are evolving. And so, yeah, who knows what's next, right? Oh, you, yeah, you you can get in a rut. There's no doubt. Oh, yeah. And I think one of the advantages of something like the magazine. And even uh, we talk about just the social media aspect to some extent. It's at least now you have a, a ready source of new ideas because you see things yeah. somebody's done and you think, oh, I never thought about that. Maybe right. I could take it and do this. We're always building on the shoulders of somebody that came before us. Always. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and I think that's I think it'll keep going. I think we're in good shape. I think so. But I, I tell people this all the time, like uh, and I've told you this before. And so I'm sorry, I'll stop with the flattery. But like I literally don't know what I would be building as a builder these days because everything I'm doing, basically, I learned out of Runmaker Magazine, whether it was the new guide concept, whether it was, you know, 
Mr. Forehands, you know, various right. techniques, whether it was, you know, all the decorative techniques that I learned, the carbon fiber from you and Andy, like literally all of it. So, yeah, I just appreciate so much what you do. It's an honor to have you on and keep up the good work. And uh, we'll post all the information for people that are interested. And uh, hopefully we can uh, we can talk you into coming back on and, and talking That'll about another one sure. of the topics that you uh, you're, you can so ably hold forth on. So thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. Well, thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Please like and subscribe, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode.